On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, oh, we're jamming it all in. we got lots and lots of stuff to get to. Opioid crisis in Hamilton. What is being done about that? What should be done about that? Ribbon cuttings by politicians. Why are we bothering? Why are we celebrating people for doing just what they're supposed to be doing? Anger out west. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, met with the Prime Minister today. Did not go well. We'll explain. Uh, we're going to talk about sugary cereal. We're going to talk about the Raptors. I don't even know if we can jam all this into one podcast, but we're going to try. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Saw this thing or had this thing come across my email not long before we came on the air today. It was a motion that is, well, I'm not sure if it's gone in front of city council or going in front of city council. We'll find out in just a moment. But it's a motion that is asking that the Board of Health recommend that an opioid overdose emergency be declared in the city of Hamilton. According to this, from January 1st and November 6th, already this year, so 2019, basically up to where we are, Hamilton Paramedic Service has responded to 516 incidents related to suspected opioid overdoses, two per day, basically that works out to. Uh, the man who, the counselor who is behind this, Sam Marula, Ward 4 counselor, joins us now. Sam, thanks for doing this today. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. So uh, my first thing, and I think a lot of people would have the same thought, why, what is the advantage or what is the benefit to the city or, or why do we want this to be declared an emergency? What happens when we can officially declare it an emergency? Uh, well, Scott, the important aspect in declaring it an emergency is that we have a concerted effort to focus our attention in trying to find a solution. So you can't identify a problem if, you, firstly, you don't recognize it, and secondly, you can't solve a problem unless you have a plan in order to uh, in order to solve it. So in this particular case, although we're doing a significant amount of work uh, accordingly on this file, and Dr. Richardson and Paul Johnson, our general manager of emergency and community services, are doing a stellar job um, in, in in isolation with our staff in dealing with this. But we need a city-wide effort and have all decks on hand uh, to ensure that not only do we recognize it as a crisis or an emergency, but that we need to allocate a budget and take action accordingly to deal with it. Do we know, do you have a theory, because I don't know if we know the answer, do you have a theory why we have such a high number in this city? Well, there are, there are various reasons. Um, obviously, when you look at, I'm an addictions counselor by trade, so uh, mind you, I've been out of it since 1995, but having said that, my understanding, there are so many contributing factors uh, to deal with with uh, substance abuse. When it comes to the opiates, which is something not in isolation in Hamilton or in ter- Ontario or Canada, it really is a North American uh, problem and one that has been addressed right from the President of the United States office in declaring it an emergency in the United States. The contributing factors are so varied that you can't really pinpoint it. But one thing that has been recognized is doctors' addiction in overprescribing medication. So that's just one aspect that I think uh, needs to be addressed. Even in Canada, most recently in the United States, there was a there was a finding in court, a class action lawsuit, uh, basically targeting the pharmaceutical companies for creating this crisis. I don't think it's too far removed uh, to conclude the same in Canada. 
Is it? And so, I mean, ultimately, then that means that a number of these cases we're saying are not necessarily people who have gone out of their way to take a drug to get high or something else. It's people who have become addicted by overprescription. Well, yes, in a sense, the complexity of addiction is is just that it, it's very complex. And when we're dealing with those complexities, you have to understand that the contributing factors to addiction uh, aren't isolated to demographics or simplistic uh, uh, approaches. So you look at what contributes to it. One thing that's been consistent throughout North America is uh, the medical professions uh, uh, just focus on over-prescribing opiates themselves as pain relief. The the timing of this is is interesting, and, and not to take away from the, the crisis, as you point out, but we are into a budget time. We are facing a crunch. You know that as well as anyone. Uh, we've had other groups that have come forward looking for buildings for safe spaces and other things that would cost money. How do we find, and I guess the answer would be, well, we just do because we have to, but how do we find the money in the budget for this? Well, if you, in reading the motion, you'll, you'll see that our budget is being stressed because of this crisis. Um, our code uh, reds, as an, as an example, where or code zero, where we have uh, no ambulances available um, if you're calling 911. is uh, really a crisis in and itself and costs us hundreds of thousands of dollars in providing that service. So when you look at the cost of the crisis on, our, on the city, on the province, particularly the medical sector or health care, and clear across the country, the actual crisis itself costs us more than ultimately finding the solution. Uh, as I said, I wasn't sure beforehand at the beginning. Has has this come before council, or is this coming before council? This this motion. This will be coming uh, to the board of health, which will be ratified by council. And have you had any feedback yet from any other councillors who have seen this? It was sent out by email. Have you heard back from anyone saying they are supporting the idea? Oh, of course, yeah. I okay. think uh, we have a, a very sophisticated council that uh, recognizes social um, presenting problems, and this is at the top of the list. Councillor Sam Marula, Ward 4, appreciate the time and bringing this up. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scotty. Have a great evening. You as well. That is, uh, it, I mean, obviously it's an issue. It's a, uh, a, a growing issue. question is, as Councillor Marula just said, the answers are not really easy. And so we can put a lot of money into it, which may help, but boy, it is a, it is a challenging, challenging thing to try and resolve and not just here in Hamilton. It's a problem everywhere. Apparently you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I said a moment ago before Sam Marula was on here that I talked about it because I had an email come across my desk, across my, my computer. Well, I had another email today and I must tell you. This one, what a ribbon. This is one of my all-time pet peeves. Ties into it. And it's an announcement that there's going to be an official ribbon-cutting ceremony to reopen Lock Street tomorrow. And there will be politicians there and other people there. And I'll tell you why this is the pet peeve of pet peeve, one of the pet peeves of pet peeves of mine. Because it seems as though whenever something has been built or rebuilt or reopened or fixed up or maintained or whatever, renamed or whatever, 
we have to have politicians come out and have their picture taken with this thing. And I, my question is, why? Why the politicians, and no knocking them, the, the ones who are going to be at this particular ribbon cutting, look, they're not doing anything different than every other politician has done forever. It just happens that we're talking about this today. But it's, this is, this is a, a common thing. It's been going on forever. But the politicians, why are they standing there getting glorified or seemingly getting their picture taken and looking like the heroes for what happened? Wasn't their money. They didn't put a dime into this work. They didn't put shovels in the ground. They simply took the money that has been given to them from us, our money, redirected it to a project and then said, hey, look at me. I got this project done. Why are we celebrating? That's just your job. That's just your job. That's not something special. What? When we have a new building that is built, invariably, inevitably, without fail, you're going to have a phalanx of politicians show up to have a plaque put up on the wall that says, this community center was built by this council. Why? How about a plaque that goes up on the wall that says, this community center was built by the taxpayers of the city of Hamilton from years what to what, whatever was the construction time. Because that's who built this thing, not the politicians. The politicians, for them to get this work done, for them to redirect money towards this, for them to get the staff to do the work, that is just the job that we are paying them to do, nothing more. We're already paying them a salary to do this. Why are we then wanting to have them come out and look like the conquering heroes for simply doing their job? And here's the worst part. I don't know if the politicians and their staff people know this, but there is not one media person in the world who doesn't consider this a giant waste of time. Sometimes you kind of have to do it because... You have to do it. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody considers this newsworthy. Lock Street has actually been open for a few days. And if I recall correctly, some stuff was written and broadcast about it being opened. So that was newsworthy. The fact that Lock Street is open again, yeah, that's newsworthy. After the construction, I guess it's a busy area. It's a a commercial area. There's restaurants and stores and everything. That matters. Why then do we have to have a little hoop-de-doo with a ribbon cutting with a bunch of politicians and city staff? That is their job. We are now going to be celebrating these people for doing exactly what they are paid to do. I would like one time for, I don't know, I won't even use me as an example. Ben is on the other side of the glass today. Ben's a wonderful young guy, young man who works hard. He almost never screws up when he's doing the job. He does it perfectly. He does everything right. He keeps us on the air. Things move along swimmingly. Now, that is why he's being paid. That's what he's being paid to do. But I don't see anybody coming in here with trumpets and fireworks and marching bands going, Ben, 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 like, way to go, Ben. No, you, we paid you to do a job. You did the job. Your thank you is the paycheck that we give you at the end of the month. Maybe not large enough for Ben's liking, but nonetheless, it is 
ridiculous to me that we have to do these things where we make these events to celebrate politicians' work to get things done when it was literally not one iota more than what was expected of them when they won election and then we paid them their not insignificant salaries. Just once, just once, any politician, and again, I'm not picking on those who are at this ribbon cutting tomorrow, just once, I would love for a politician to do a project and then say, uh, I don't need to be thanked. I'm good. Just enjoy the place. I don't need my name on there. Just enjoy the place. It's good. Think it'll ever happen? Me neither. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very intriguing. And I don't know if it's overstating it to say crucial, but certainly important meetings going on today in Ottawa. Andrew Shear was meeting with Justin Trudeau, the new returning, whatever you want to call him, prime minister. And also Scott Moe, who is the Saskatchewan premier, who was meeting with Justin Trudeau. Now, you'll recall that his province, like Alberta, was a shade of deep blue on election night. At the end of that night then, when Justin Trudeau got up to give his acceptance speech, you will recall, you probably listened to it, uh, he said that he heard the people there. He saw the map, he saw the electoral map, he heard the people there, and he was going to work to help them and be their prime minister like the rest of the country. Well, I want to bring in Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken to the conversation. Uh, David with all those things said, from what I'm reading, it didn't sound like this meeting went all that well today. No, and, and you're right. The, the, the two meetings are the important ones to focus on. They're a pair. They're sort of, for the prime minister, he's got the same objective. He's looking for things to put in the throne speech. And we learned today, among other things, that we're going to see this or hear the throne speech on December the 5th. And, of course, the throne speech is where a government lays out its legislative agenda, tells people what it plans to do. And so... What Trudeau was doing, first of all, with the meeting with Scheer, was <clears throat> trying to figure out, okay, where, where, where do the Conservatives and Liberals have some common ground? And believe it or not, there is some common ground. Uh, for example, both parties campaigned on some pretty deep income tax cuts that would really help middle-class Canadians and uh, low-income Canadians. Okay, common ground there. They both agreed that they want to improve the subway line in Toronto. Okay, but common ground there. So there's some things there. So... Trudeau's also meeting this week with the other party leaders, tomorrow with the Bloc Québécois leader, Yves-Francois Blanchette, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader on Thursday, and even Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader. So so he's got a, he's, so Trudeau is thinking about his legislative agenda. He wants to have a, a stable minority parliament for a period of time, a couple of years. And you know what? I think the odds are pretty good that he can see his way through to that. But just as he's been meeting with uh opposition leaders, he's also been meeting with premiers. Today, as I mentioned, it was Scott Moe from Saskatchewan. On Friday, he had uh, Brian Pallister in from Manitoba, or last Thursday, pardon me. He also has spoken to New Brunswick's Blaine Higgs by phone. Still don't know when he's going to meet with uh, Doug Ford. Um, I'm told that people are trying to arrange times and schedules. Uh, but Trudeau's trying to meet with the premiers because it's true. What he said on election night, there's an east-west divide. There's no no liberal MPs in two significant western provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan. And, of course, you saw, you know, a whole pile of bloc MPs, you know, separatists elected in Quebec. And, you know, Trudeau has a national unity problem on his hands. So Trudeau is asking the premiers, what's going on? What do I need to do? What didn't go too badly with Pallister, who, remember, is also a conservative-minded premier, Manitoba's Brian Pallister, didn't go so well today with Scott Moe. 
um, you know, Mo basically the the bond the, the it, it starts and stops with the carbon tax. Mo absolutely wants that carbon tax suspended, just like here in Ontario, uh, the federal government imposed a carbon tax on Saskatchewan, and of course Trudeau's line is you know it's a carbon tax and rebate program. I mean, Saskatchewanians just like Ontarians are getting a rebate at tax time. They're getting you know other other tax rebates. So Trudeau's trying to talk about that and seeing is there other things that can be done for Saskatchewan along maybe some new regulatory approvals for resource projects, things like that. So it was a pretty short meeting, you know, just under an hour. And um, Mo showed up hoping there would be a change in Trudeau's heart for a carbon tax. The problem for, for Mo is two-thirds of Canadians, at least two-thirds of Canadians, voted for a party that one way or the other was advocating a carbon tax. That was the Green Party, the NDP, the Bloc, and the Liberals. And, you know, they got two-thirds of the vote. Mo says, yeah, but that wasn't the ballot question. So, I don't know, we can argue about that. But, uh, you know, the Prime Minister's, Prime Minister's in his corner, and Scott Mo is uh, is in his corner. The difficulty with all this, and by the way, Scott Mo sent out a tweet right afterwards. It's a, it's a longish tweet, but he goes, uh, today I expected to hear what he planned to do. What I heard was more of the same. Nothing has changed. The Prime Minister may have abandoned Saskatchewan, but I will not. I expect that a similar tone will be struck when Jason Kenney sits down. I don't think that uh, the Prime Minister is suddenly going to tell Kenney that Alberta gets everything it wants. This, to me, when you have these meetings after that election night assurance that we are here for you, we're going to work for you, I'm not sure this does anything to assuage any of the anger that's out west right now. In fact, I think it probably flares it up more. Uh, It it probably doesn't, but again, you know, I'm not going to be an apologist for the Prime Minister, but you know he's going to he's going to have his answer to Kenny and Mo in the throne speech on December 5th. So they're coming out of these meetings or at least Scott Mo is saying nothing's changed it's the same old same old. I guess we'll have to see on December 5th. And don't forget just as I said that two-thirds of Canadians voted for a party that was proposing a carbon tax of some shape way or form, two-thirds of Canadians also voted for a pipeline expansion. And those would be all the Canadians that voted for the Liberals and the Conservatives. There's another common ground that Liberals and Conservatives agree that that TMX pipeline connecting Alberta with Burnaby, B.C., it ought to be expanded. So if there was a heightened sense of urgency to get that expansion online, and I should point out, construction is underway in some parts of the line right now. If there was a heightened urgency there, would that help? It might. But still, at the end of the day, you know, the, the there just isn't a government representative from Alberta right. or from Saskatchewan. And you, you can try with a senator. Up, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to try. I know Trudeau's thinking about it. I'm told that, they, you know, they've done a lot of work on this. There's still a lot of work to go. And it's going to be very interesting to see how Trudeau tries to account for Western views at his cabinet table. Because one of the big shockers, of course, in the election is Saskatchewan's Ralph Goodale lost his seat. I mean, that was... I'm told by everybody that was a that was a verdict on Trudeau. It wasn't a verdict on Goodale. Uh, Goodale was just even Goodale's own personal popularity could not uh, beat Trudeau's unpopularity in Saskatchewan. So we'll see what Trudeau does, but he needs some sort of way to get the Western voice at his cabinet table. Not sure how how that's going to work. It is uh, it is a fascinating meeting today, and uh, we will be watching David Aiken, uh, chief political correspondent for Global News. Thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yep, no problem. Cheers. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
want to continue with what we were just talking about with David Aiken, the chief political correspondent from Global News there, about these meetings that are going on. Andrew Scheer met with the Prime Minister today, but more particularly, because I think this is really hitting in a heart of something that's really troubling right now, really complicated. Uh, Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, met with the Prime Minister, came out of the meeting, and here was his full tweet that he sent out. On election night, the Prime Minister said he heard the frustrations of Saskatchewan people and would take action to address those concerns. Today, I expected to hear what he planned to do. What I heard was more of the same. Nothing has changed. The Prime Minister may have abandoned Saskatchewan, but I will not. Well, you know what? Uh, throwing in the word, when you have the sense, when the Premier is saying that he, that the Prime Minister, the man who is in leading this entire country, has abandoned a chunk of it. And you can know that Alberta feels exactly the same way. So you've got a huge chunk of this country whose leaders are saying the Prime Minister is not in it for them. And to go back, you, you on election night, you had that comment from the Prime Minister. If you listen to his victory speech, although he was saying it at the same time as Andrew Shears, as you'll recall, but anyway, um, he said he spread a message of uni- unity and of bringing people together. And I hear you and I'm going to work for you, all you people, because I see that you voted not for me in giant swaths. But that's okay. I'm still your prime minister. I'm still going to work to make your life better. And then today, the premier again of Saskatchewan comes out and says, that's not what he's doing at all. Well, whether you're a Trudeau supporter or whether you're not a Trudeau supporter, you can see the gigantic troubling complications that come out of this. And not just, you know, we're talking about things in the West. And some people are saying, come on, we live in Ontario. Who cares? Trust me, this is going to be an issue that will dominate the conversation for a long time and will spill over eventually into your world. Because if the Prime Minister, and I don't think this is truly the case, I don't think he's a dumb man, but if he thought that he could appease Westerners by saying something nice on election night when everybody was having their emotions at the most raw out there after they voted blue, if he thought that he could say something that would just make them feel better and then three or four weeks later, everybody will have calmed down and now I can go back to what I really believe and they're never going to notice. Everyone's going to be cool with that. Well, he, he would not be a very astute man because that's not how it's going to work. But he, I mean, this was a test. This was a test today. Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan, went in there and some people have said Scott Moe was even asked about it, whether he went in looking for a fight, whether he did or didn't doesn't really matter. The answer that was given was what you expressed your concerns about, we're still not willing to bend on. So as David Aiken just said, though, there are some common grounds here, though, is why this becomes a story that may affect you, not just Westerners and why this is an basically becoming an impossible situation. Some will say of the prime minister's own making, mind you, that this was not, the country was not nearly as fractured five years ago as it is now, which leads one to believe that the prime minister has had something to do with this. Nonetheless, here's where the situation becomes complicated and spills over to you. As David Aiken said, there are areas where you can have common ground. The conservatives and the liberals both want pipelines to be built. All right, good. We can work together on that one. But... The NDP and the Green want nothing to do with a pipeline. Huh, how are we going to deal with them? Well, they want the carbon tax, but the Conservatives don't want the carbon tax. 
You can go on and on down the list of all these different things that they want. One wants more immigration. One wants limited immigration or different immigration. One wants, um, pick your thing. One wants free education for university. One wants tax cuts. One doesn't want tax cuts. How in the world are you going to try and sit down? And if you were to say, because keep in mind, there are two There's so many issues, but there are two that seem to be the hottest of the hot button issues, the carbon tax and the pipeline. You go to the NDP and the Greens and you say, listen, we'll give you your carbon tax, but to get the carbon tax, to keep it going, we need to build the pipelines. And then you go to the conservatives and say, listen, you've got to accept the carbon tax to get your pipelines. You've got a country right now that is, with the parties and with the way things were voted on and with the regions, that is impossibly dug in. And I just, I simply don't see, I don't see, and I maybe, I mean, I'm not in politics, I'm not the prime minister, I'm not one of the wise people of politics, I'm just a talk show host and a columnist. But I fail to see, with some of these issues that people have their heels so deeply dug in on, that the NDP and the Greens have basically said under no circumstances will we accept a pipeline. And the Conservatives who have said under no circumstances will we go for the carbon tax as, as drawn up here. And under no circumstances will we not have a pipeline. How do you, how do you govern, how do you run a country when you've created a situation that is that inflexible, unpliable, unbendable, nobody is willing to give in on anything? And tell me, do you think Jagmeet Singh or Elizabeth May? Now, Elizabeth May, I know she stepped down, but do you think one of them is going to go back to their voters and go, yeah, you know, I told you we weren't ever going to allow a pipeline, but ah, it's okay. We, we let this one go. Come on. And do you think that the conservatives are going to go back? Andrew Shear is going to go back to the conservative voters and say, yeah, those things that we were totally against. Yeah, we, we let them have it. No big deal. Come on. This is an impossible situation now impossible situation. I don't know how they're going to resolve it. Don't, I have no idea. And it's, 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 it's dangerous, not violence dangerous. It's dangerous for the health of the country. And it's troubling for the health of the country. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm not going to ask him if he's ever eaten sugary cereal. I know I have. You know, when I was a Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins us now. Bubba, when I was a kid... There was simply, we didn't get a lot of sugary cereal in the house. My mom, you know, was more into the health food stuff. The granola that would go through you in like three hours, like an SOS pad through your system. But with the days that we could get the sugary cereal were the glorious days of our youth. You know, we never had a lot in my home, but I will say this. On occasion, and this will bring you back some time, I don't know if it still exists, I don't do too much shopping for cereal these days, which too expensive. Not good, but we usually had Rice Krispies in the house or or cornflakes. Yep. But I guess maybe when they were on sale, my dad, who did a lot of the grocery shopping, would purchase the, you know that twelve you know it was like a twelve pack. The little boxes. Of the little boxes. Oh, see that that was we got that only at the cottage every year. Yeah. 
only at the cottage for one week that we would go up to the cottage or two weeks. We got the little and they you cut them and then like the I capital yeah. I shaped thing, two cuts yeah. and then a cut and you poured the milk right into the box. Yes, yes. Now we knew, now we didn't do that at, at home. We would pour it out in a bowl. Um, my mom would not have that. Um, <laughs> but you uh, you think about what was in that box, and it was generally a cornflakes. It was generally Fruit Loops, a Fruit Loops, Frosted Flakes, yeah, Frosted Flakes, um, Rice Krispies, Rice Krispies. There was generally one brand, a raisin brand. Uh, yep, it, it was like a raisin. Yeah, but there was one other. It was like a. It wasn't a raisin brand. It was like this kind of like a. It was really brand. It was very adult <laughs> at the time, and, and uh, you know something that I think most kids would not enjoy at that period of their lives. But that was treat time. You mean all brand? We're going to bring in the all brand. All remember, brand. Do, yes. Do yes, you remember exactly. the old Saturday Night Live skit about super colon blow? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> I remember. I remember every once in a while that I was like, "Oh, let me try this," and it was just tremendously awful. Horrible taste. Didn't like it. It was like chewing on rabbit pellets. Yeah, it, you know, and, it, and by far it was probably the most healthy cereal that was available <laughs> in that box. But I had not. You know, when you're nine years old, you, you're not interested in that in that in healthy cereal. When you eat a box of those all brands or any of the like-minded cereals like that, uh, within two hours, you better have a good long period of your day with access to a toilet. There was just that. That's what they were designed for. They were just yeah. simply supposed to plunge you right through. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, you know, was a, you know, just sorry, just one more. Yes. on this on this note. Also, what was really good was when you made those trips as a child to Florida, and you somehow frequent the buffet, and they generally had a, a wonderful selection of sugared cereals for all to to enjoy. There is nothing better than eating sugary cereal when you were a kid. There's nothing worse than your kid eating sugary cereal as an adult. <laughs> so so that they now are like full speed, 200 miles an hour for the entire half a day until the, the sugar high plunges. Because see, this is the other thing. This is not what we're going to be talking about, but here's the other thing. When you're a kid, it seems that when you get one of those sugar highs, they last forever. They, I mean, the sugar high, the buzz, and the, the adrenaline and everything else. Now, as an adult, if I eat something, I'll get the big buzz. I'll get the sugar high. But it seems like I crash, like, way, way, oh, yeah. way quicker. That's right. It's so true. You get the, hmm, this is yummy. And then, oh, exactly. oh, oh. Exactly. I Years ago, I had, when, when Jim Balsillie was buying the Pittsburgh Penguins from Mario Lemieux or trying to to bring them to Hamilton, the paper says, get down there. He was having a press conference in the first intermission, and it was in the morning. So I got in my car, and I drove to Pittsburgh to be there for that night's game to get there for the press conference. And in Erie, Pennsylvania, on Peach Crescent or Peach Drive or Peach Tree or whatever it is, there is a Krispy Kreme place, and I stopped there, mm-hmm. and it's about halfway to Pittsburgh. Well, you get back in the car. It's Krispy Kreme. You know, I pop in like three donuts in the span of a minute. Right. And now you're driving with this just massive buzz, but all of a sudden again, like 10 minutes later, you're almost asleep. It's like, well, better have another donut. It's so true. I'm riding this roller coaster all the way now to Pittsburgh, and when I get there, that box was empty, and I and I was basically done. Hey, done. Anyway. Done. Anyway, let us move along. Hey, a couple things before we get to the big thing that I wanted to talk to you about. I was watching your newscast. It was on here in the uh, in the studio. I didn't have any sound on. I'm watching, did McMaster football have to practice in two feet of snow today? <laughs> they actually are, from what um, 
our reporter Justin Dunk was saying is that they're in the mix of clearing off the field with a snowplow, um, and they probably won't get to practicing on the field till about eight o'clock tonight. You or some people will remember that the last time they were in the Vanier Cup was in Montreal in 2014, and uh, they got there, and the t- both teams were supposed to be practicing a couple days before at Percival Molson Stadium, where the Alouettes play, and they had had a lot of snow, and McMaster shows up to have their practice. Well, the Montreal Carabin have decided that they've ditched this idea. They're now practicing at their indoor facility. That's right even though the media is all waiting for them. Meanwhile, the field is covered in a foot of snow, and there are tents on the field while they're trying to spray the logos on the field. So they can't, like they're trying to run drills with white tents in the middle of this thing while the coaches are shoveling lines. And I was like, come on, Montreal. Like that was, that was, that was so Bush League. That was the ultimate insult to that team. But I thought of that today well, when I, you know, when I, I saw I this. Guess it's, I guess it's the old home field advantage kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but it's not supposed to be in the Vanier Cup. It's supposed to be a neutral site. No, it's just, you know, yeah, I'm not, not a fan. That was, that was, you know who was the hero of that weekend? That was the weekend, besides that happening, at the awards... They somehow had, I think, three or four McMaster players made first-team All-Canadians. Somehow, the only names that got missed when they announced the All-Canadians were the McMaster guys. Isn't that something? And Russ Jackson, McMaster alumni, got up when he gave out the Russ Jackson Award, and he called out the Montreal people and said, this is ridiculous, I'm going to read their names, I'm here for McMaster, and it was Russ Jackson who rose to the occasion and stood up for the for the Hamilton School. Well, that's so. a great story. I never knew about that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, that's 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 that's. I mean, I, I use this word, you know, loosely a little bit, but I hope the listeners understand. But that's absolutely criminal to do something like that for, you know, to get. I mean, an all star achievement is is something that's important for these kids, and you know, it's a recognition by the league and for them to do that. I never knew about that story, Scott. That's, if and Russ that. is you've met Russ. Anyone who's met Russ, he's the nicest, quietest, oh, most understated guy. And for him to get cranked up enough to have to do that yeah. was, uh, you know, what it was like. Anyway, uh, that class act, that man, that's for sure. Uh, a couple things I want to get to in the time we have here, which we've already used up a lot of. Uh, I watched the Raptor game last night, stayed up late. I was, uh, it was a very late night because it was Remembrance Day, so of course I started watching Band of Brothers again for the 10th time, and <laughs> plus I had the Raptors game, so it was about three before I finally went to bed. But anyway, I will say this for the Toronto Raptors, which shocks me. They look great. I mean, they have no Kawhi, obviously. They have no Kyle Lowry. They have no OG Ananobi because he got poked in the eye. They have no Pascal Siakam. No, uh, yeah, Pascal Siakam because he's not, not Siakam. Um, no, no, who am I thinking of? Yes, yeah, it's Serge Ibaka. Ibaka, Ibaka, sorry. They have they beat the Lakers and they played the Clippers. I mean, they lost by 10, but basically they played them to a draw. I mean, they just finally back-to-back nights. That was a four-point game, Scott. Back-to-back nights. They ran out of steam in the last two minutes. They basically played them even. I got to say, I had no expectation that the Toronto Raptors were going to be this competitive under the circumstances, particularly this year. Not surprised one bit, and I know even on this very program of yours that I had said I expect the Raptors to be extremely competitive. I don't, I mean, yes, you take away a Kawhi Leonard who's, you know, arguably a top three player in the league, and there's going to be some fall off, but there are players in the waiting. There are hungry players. There are players that are going to use their motivations as in like, as in the fact of, well, you think it was all Kawhi? Watch us. 
You have uh, this team, in my opinion, is poised for a third to fourth place finish in the conference. They will have home uh, home court advantage in the postseason, uh, and and I think I mean they're tied for second now. Uh, and I know it's early, but I don't want to expect a lot of drop-off. This is a good team that has got a very good coach, and they're very motivated. And on top of that, do you? I mean, I was reading Amer- an American press um, basically talking about the Raptors about after, their, you know, after their, they defeated the Lakers on how blown away they are. And the, the, the me, I'm, of course, I mean, I'm all over the American press in the morning time because, you know, you're curious to see what people are saying about the Raptors. And this morning, the topic was, have the Raptors set the blueprint for other NBA teams on how to stop Kawhi Leonard? He had no points after the first half. Yeah, I, uh, maybe. I, I think that probably Kawhi Leonard was psyched up for that game as well. Look, he doesn't show much, but I think that game mattered to him and I think he sure may have did. been a little over he may have been a little over juiced for that one where you know, that happens sometimes. You're just so geared up to play that nothing goes your way. The thing with the Raptors though is I, I expected them to be okay this year, maybe even pretty good, but when you then take Lowry out of the lineup and you mm-hmm. take Ibaka out of the lineup and you take Ananobi, look, you can talk about their motivation and I agree and how hungry they are, but if I'm a uh, uh, an okay poet being motivated doesn't turn me into Shakespeare. You've still got to have talent. And I look at this team and, and they are clearly motivated. They clearly work hard. I just didn't see the level of talent. And all of a sudden you've got Boucher who's playing like, I don't know what he's playing. Like he's like this guy who was nothing for the last few years. And suddenly he's discovered but a game. This is where, you know, again, and this is not your fault, Scott, but I mean, People don't follow basketball to the extent of hockey where they know of a lot of the young people up and coming. There is not, I mean, there's a lot of truth to this statement. There's a lot of people that don't know, and this is where Messiah Jiri should get a lot of credit, even more credit than he does now. The... Because we, we, as Maple Leaf fans will say, and I know I'm more of a Sabres fan, will say, but as Maple Leaf followers or media people, we spend a lot of time keeping an eye on what's going on with the Marlies or who's the guy that's coming up. We forget that a guy like Boucher was the G League MVP. He was the G League Defensive Player of the Year. So, yes, it's a surprise to see him playing as well as he is, but it's not a surprise to the organization. All guys like this need are is a chance, but that's where that's where the the thing comes in because I knew and I think a lot of people knew about his background and his resume with the G League, but when he got playing time last year, there wasn't a lot there. My point is he seems to have gone from a guy who was a marginal role player who maybe you threw in in garbage time. Well, that's the post point. So sorry to cut you off no. there, but that he, he's get, that's the point, Scott, is he's getting garbage time last year when it really meant nothing, and it, was, it, it all kind of turned out into kind of a friendly joke when he was playing. Yep. Because you're looking at this guy, and you're going, oh my God, he looks like a rail. <laughs> but, you don't, but you're like, oh, but now we're seeing it now that he's getting significant minutes, especially with all the injuries. And they've also accumulated through the offseason – Players like Hollis Johnson, like Jefferson, the like guys that were very good, in fact, exceptional college players that just didn't have a chance somewhere else. And now these guys are playing. In addition, their leading player, can you believe this, that the American press are saying that OG Ananobi, if this keeps up, he could be the first player to win most improved player in back-to-back Siakam. years. Siakam, Siakam. Uh, sorry, Pascal Siakam yep. in back-to-back years. Like, that's unheard of. 
because he took this massive step last year, and really, you watch him play now. No, he looks and, great. And he, he's taken a, an even further step. I mean, he's averaging more points per game than Kawhi Leonard is. The uh, last year, and I'm trying to remember, you'll probably remember before me, right before the trade deadline, there was a huge blockbuster trade that was rumored involving the Raptors, and I can't remember who the guy was that was being talked about, but one of the key pieces would have been Pascal Siakam going back the other way. And I remember at the time there was a lot of discussion going, oh, maybe we need to do that. I mean, oh, I know. Jimmy, the, the Jimmy Butler rumors. Was it Jimmy Butler? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. If if Ujiri had given even a few seconds of thought to whether we should actually do that, you know that he's sitting there right now going, oh, thank goodness we didn't flinch and make a move like that. We ended up winning, and we've got this guy who, who I mean, look, it, it, you're right about the improvement. This is a guy that legitimately, give him another year or two, if he's continuing to show this kind of improvement, he will be talked about among the great players in the league. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. What we're seeing right now is not this, I I believe, and I know from people that know even more than myself, would would, would say this to, to anyone that would listen, that he's not even he's not even close to the ceiling yet. He's still learning. Right? He's still learning to use his body because two of the first six games of the season he fouled out. In which, you know, and this is where you give credit to a guy like Nick Nurse, a no nonsense Nick Nurse, mm. that called him out in front of the media and said he's not he's he's not very smart right now, right? Because you know you've got to be able to utilize your body, know when to take fouls, you know, pick your spots. Otherwise, you're going to so give that's him part of the mentality learning of, of 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 Siakam. You're calling him now the quadruple N, the coach. No nonsense, Nick Nurse. <laughs> the quad N. Uh, okay. Here's the thing of two. Remember everybody who's many people who are listening of a certain age who will remember the Blue Jays of the 1980s with Damaso Garcia and Tony yeah. Fernandez yeah. and George Bell when they went and mined the Dominican Republic before anyone else did. Mm-hmm. I got to believe that, remember the movie The Air Up There with Kevin Bacon where he went to Africa to find the seven-foot-tall basketball player in the middle of the jungle or the middle of the African continent? <laughs> I know the movie. I never watched it, though, but I know of the movie. It was a horrible movie. But I got to believe that there are GMs who are now watching that and watching this and going, maybe it's time to start sending some scouts over. If Pascal Siakam can be dug up, in Africa, years after Dikembe Matumbo was, and even even uh, a bowl, a minute bowl. I mean, who was not the player? I- I'm amazed when you look at a guy, at some of these players who have been discovered. Right. Let's let's start mining that continent because clearly there may be nuggets there that we can find Absolutely. that will really. It's an untapped market, and the guys that we have found have been most. Uh, uh, is there an African player? I mean, like. African African player who's come to the NBA who has not been impactful probably, but I can't think of one. I mean, and, and you remember too the, the the genius with Siakam is, I mean, never the guy never started playing the game till he was what fifteen years old. Yeah, right. So it was just a, it was an athletic recognition of what the guy might be able to mm-hmm. do. You know, it's it, it, it he's a he's a fantastic story, and I know you know players like him and. Um, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's, you know, I mean, I know they call him the Greek freak, but his true, his true roots are, you know, African, where he, you know, he's, these players, along with Messiah Jerry, are working very hard on exposing the NBA to the youth in, in many of these countries in Africa. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, and telling these kids basically to dream big. 
And, and you know, and I, I would think, you know, with the Internet and all the kind of things that exist nowadays where, you know, people in other continents can watch teams like the Raptors. And, you know, hence, you know, when we talk about the globalization of the NBA, and that's why it is really, in my opinion, the only true global game that is that there is out there in the big four sports. Well, yeah, I was going to say soccer, but yes, I get your point. Uh, you know, now, here's the other thing as I let you go. If you are an NBA general manager and you're looking on where to send your scouts, I would say Africa then becomes the place. If you're looking internationally, not Brazil. Don't follow the Bruno Caboclo method. Oh, gosh. Or the Rafael Harujo. <laughs> Rafael Harujo. Yes. Yeah. I would say Brazil is the place that you go to not find NBA players at this point. I would say, I would say the African... Awesome dancers. In- not so much in basketball play. Yeah, I think I still think the African nations are, you know, the continent is probably second to Canada right now because you probably get a more polished player. Yes, absolutely, in, absolutely. Know, in, this, in this country here, that's probably closer affiliated to playing in the NCAA without as much difficulty. But so I think Canada is probably, you know, uh, the first place right now, and I think we're seeing that right now as the Canadian players do represent the largest market, the largest, the largest amount of international players in the NBA at this point, other than Americans. But the difference is. All, any, if you're a good Canadian player or a great Canadian athlete, NBA scouts know about you. They've seen you. Whereas if you can go to Africa somewhere and somehow dig up this untapped gem that they seem to occasionally find there, and there's mm-hmm. got to be more. I mean, look, I, I'm amazed that we haven't seen more coming out of China. There's a billion people. I mean, again, I understand that not everybody is going to look like Yao Ming. Yeah, but somehow out of a billion people, there's got to be a few more great basketball players than we've seen. We've Jeremy Lin, who was Jeremy Lin, he was what? Asian, but I don't think he was Chinese. He never came from China. Yeah, and he wasn't even drafted, right? He no, was a Harvard student, and, uh, and but and but he's Asian, but again, but he wasn't like tapped out of China to come here and no, play. Like you, no, you've no. basically got almost none that, uh, that have been tapped and found in China. Like you've got these massive untapped markets of the world, and it look if the Raptors are the team that's going to be the Jays of Dominican Republic. Hey, good for them. Good yeah, for them. Keep it yeah, going. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what's another untapped market that I, I, you know, I hear from a lot of people that are, be, you know, scouts are kind of loosely looking more and more at right now, is right here the U sports guys that for whatever reason slipped through the cracks. Um. Not playing, not playing, and did, just didn't get an NCAA deal, quite honestly. And that there's, you know, you have teams like Carlton who just keep winning and winning and beating American teams, and then they eventually say, "Well, hold on a second. <laughs> well, if an NBA, we got to go. If an NBA team can find a guy in Africa and train him up enough, find a great athlete and train him up enough to be potentially a good NBA player, why in the world could you not do that with a youth sports guy who is already familiar enough with the game and just needs a little more training to get to that level? It makes sense. It's there. Bob O'Neill from CHCH. You can see him tonight. Tune in. Weather? Do you got to do weather tonight? At least weather is easier tonight than last night. Uh, yes, the, the, the weather was an issue last night, and, <laughs> and I wanted no part of it. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me as always. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.